This morning we shall consider working out your own salvation. Working out your own salvation. Our text is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through to 15. Thus far in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has reminded the Philippian Christians of some of the graces that they have received from God, such as, and this is all from verse 1, their encouragement in Christ as a result of them having him, having Jesus as their saviour from sin. That's got to be a great encouragement. They had comfort in that God loved them with an everlasting love. They had the Holy Spirit who joined them in fellowship with one another and, of course, with Jesus. Also, they they were the recipients of God's loving kindness and his tender mercies. The various graces that are enumerated in verse 1 are just the tip of the iceberg when you think about it. It's clearly, you can only get so much in one little verse there. And when you consider that Christians are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, not just what we see in that verse 1 there. That's a lot of blessings, every spiritual blessing And it's a lot of motivation for all of you Christians to cheerfully serve God and to strive for more holiness in your born-again life. Uh, Is that part of your prayer, prayer life? Do you actually pray for more holiness? Serious question. Do you pray for more holiness? In view of all the good things, all the good gifts, the perfect gifts that the Philippians had received from God, the Apostle Paul exhorted them to live their lives worthy of the gospel. They were not to be self-seeking, they were not to be self-glorifying. Rather, in lowliness of mind, they were to consider others better than themselves. And the, the example that was given to them, the one to imitate, was none other than the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who made himself of no reputation. He became flesh. He took upon himself the form of a servant, a bondservant, and he experienced a sacrificial death at the cross for all who trust in him. And we are to have the same attitude of mind as Jesus. From verse 12 onwards through to the end of chapter 2, the apostle applies in practical ways what he has already said in verses 12 and 13, where he said, let's have a look at these verses now, 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. First of all, we can look at the obedience of the Philippians. Straight away in verse 12 there, it can be seen that Paul was not in any way rebuking them. He wasn't barking orders at them. Far from it. 
In fact, he spoke to them in tenderness and with love, with affection. As he did so, he acknowledged their obedience thus far when he said to them, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, he called them his beloved and he acknowledged that they had always obeyed. Does that seem a little bit strange to you when you think about it though? Always obeyed? Really? It's reasonable to say that Paul was not talking about a perfect and continual obedience to the Ten Commandments. If he had of, if they really were, uh, if they really had rather, obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly and continually, they would have had no need of Jesus. Those laws from God that place upon us a duty to love God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength and to love our neighbour as ourselves, they, those Philippians, they had not obeyed those laws continually. Such a duty is very reasonable, by the way. God is not being unreasonable when he tells us to love himself, to love him rather, and to love our neighbour. Not unreasonable. However, the problem is that because of the wickedness of the human heart, no one has ever obeyed those commandments except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus alone was perfectly obedient to them in life and in death. That's what we've been reading in the first part of chapter 2. His obedience, even unto the death of the cross. Perfect obedience to God's law. As has already been seen there in verse 8. Just look at it again, verse 8. This is why I'm telling you, encouraging you to try and learn verses like this. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The Apostle Paul, in the first instance, was telling the Philippians this. These Philippians who had, um, what did he say there? Always obeyed. But it's not for nothing that he had just said to them that Jesus was obedient even unto the death of the cross. The people whom Paul wrote to, they were Christians and they were Christians precisely because they acknowledged their failure to keep God's laws perfectly. That's the difference between a Christian and someone who's not a Christian. The Christian has come before the throne of God saying, Lord, you are holy. You have a very reasonable expectation of me to love. And I've failed miserably. I'm a sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's essentially what a Christian is. And that's what those Philippians were. And consequently their trust was in Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law's demands on their behalf and who paid the debt of their sin with his own precious blood. So, coming back to verse 12 here, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, 
who or what was it that the Philippians always obeyed? Whether in Paul's presence or it would seem even more so in his absence. What had they obeyed? Perfectly, no less. It was the gospel of Christ, which James referred to as the perfect law of liberty in his epistle. The first act of obedience to that law, the perfect law of liberty, is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's not a polite request from God. God commands everyone everywhere to repent. And salvation is found in none other. There is no other name under heaven given unto men whereby they must be saved. There's no pretty please there about it. God commands us to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As it is written in John chapter 3 verse 16 through to 18, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's simple, isn't it? You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have everlasting life. That is obedience to the gospel, believing. But it goes on. Most of us probably know that first verse, but it's a shame if you stop there. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. Well, that's good, isn't it? You're obedient to that perfect law of liberty. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Maybe that's someone in this room now. You are condemned already because he have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then at the end of John chapter 3, in the last verse, verse 36, it is written, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Praise God for that, you Christians. You have everlasting life because you believe. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. Well, you're here now. You may be someone in here who is disobedient to the gospel. You have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're saying, Glenn, what are you talking about? Shall not see life. Well, you are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Shall not see life and but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God is upon you. A very reasonable, righteous, holy anger of God is upon you because you are, you are because of your rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your rejection of the greatest act of love ever. The Lord Jesus Christ stretched out on a cross bearing away sin. You turn away from that and the wrath of God is upon you. Therefore, obedience to the gospel of Christ is primarily about trusting in the incarnate Son of God who was perfectly obedient to the law and who is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You believe in Jesus, he is your righteousness. 
his perfect obedience is credited to your account. Do you get that? This is what the, this is what it's all about. When you have the righteousness of Jesus instead of your own self-righteousness, his perfect obedience is credited to your account. How wonderful that is. Can you see how important obedience to the gospel of Christ is? It's, it, it's exceedingly important. It means everlasting life, whereas unbelief means everlasting destruction. That's got to be something for all of you to think about very seriously. And if you haven't already done so, you really must respond positively in obedience to the gospel of Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And instead of the wrath of God being upon you, you will be a child of God. Jesus himself will give you the right, the power, the privilege to become a son or a daughter of the living God. Why would anyone want to turn away from that? I don't know. Well, I do know it's called sin. Secondly, work out your own salvation. We've looked at the obedience of the Philippians. Now it's work out your own salvation. As we have just considered, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is the first and the most important act of obedience. However, from then on, your obedience ought to be seen in a born-again life of working out your own salvation. You, Christian, working out your own salvation. That's what it says in verse 12 there. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. That does not mean that you do anything or you do something in order to receive salvation. Neither does it mean that you have to do something in order to keep your salvation and in order to go and be with Jesus in paradise when you die. You don't have to do anything. No requirements there. Not at all. If you are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are already saved with an everlasting salvation and Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. And again, praise God for that. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. You are safe in the hand of Christ. You don't have to do anything. Jesus has done it all for you. And even now, it's not as if Jesus has finished completely. He ever liveth to make intercession for you as your great heavenly high priest. The hymn writer got it right when he wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. It is by grace you are saved. Grace has brought you safe thus far, and grace will take you home to be with Jesus. Again, you are required to do nothing. It's all been done for you. It's called the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So what does it actually mean for someone who is already saved by grace to work out his own salvation? Does it make any sense? Because clearly this is what Paul is exhorting you to do, to work out your own salvation. Actually, an example is given in verse 14 of what it means in practical terms to work out your own salvation. Look at it there, verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That's working out your own salvation. Doing all things without murmurings and and disputings. That's not that's not it, but that's part of it. Christians are to do that, and they are to do much more besides in view of what has just been considered. You are to work out your own salvation in view of what has just been considered. As you can see, verse 12 starts with that frequently used word in the Bible, wherefore or therefore, it's there isn't it, wherefore my beloved and so on, work out your own salvation. We saw an example of wherefore only last week, look at verse 9 there, wherefore God also have highly exalted him, Do you remember that from last week? Prior to the wherefore last week, it spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, making himself of no reputation, taking him, taking uh, the form of a servant, uh, humbling himself, being obedient, even unto the death of the cross. The Son of God coming into this world of sin and laying down his life for sinners, doing the God's will, perfectly, perfect obedience. Then in verse 9, wherefore? So because of all that, because of the uh, the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, his humility, his uh, meekness of heart, wherefore God has highly exalted him. God has done this because of that because of what has proceeded. That's what we saw last week. For the reasons already given, you are to work out your own salvation. Because of what has proceeded, you are to work out your own salvation. As And Paul has already been talking about the encouragement that the Philippians had in Christ, the love of God towards them, the Holy Spirit who brought them together in fellowship with one another and with Jesus. They had all these things. It's all been mentioned before. He had already urged them to consider others better than themselves in lowliness of mind, keeping in mind the humility of their great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's the background information. And with all that in mind, you, dear Christian, are to do all things without murmuring and disputings, as you consider others better than yourselves, and as you let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. It's not unreasonable, is it? Only yesterday morning I was talking to a fellow in Douglas, and he We disagreed on quite a few things in scriptures, but we were in agreement in a way, in a sense that he did want to insist that um, 
our, our faith ought to be seen. At the moment, I tend to think that uh, he is someone who possibly puts too much importance on works. But I, at least I did agree with him. Yep, I agree that a real saving faith is something that ought to be seen. It's got to be much more than a, a little testimony at a baptism service. A real saving faith. Being a new creature in Christ. And Jesus himself said, uh, that he spoke about those who do not keep his sayings. And he will say to them, I never knew you. You can't ignore verses like that in the scriptures. If you are a Christian, it really ought to be seen in the life that you live. There's no doubt about it. The scriptures is very clear on that. You're to let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and they uh, they glorify your Father in heaven. This is what Jesus said. You can put a spin on that as much as you want to, but it changes nothing. Next we're going to look at working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again we look at verse 12. Wherefore my beloved as ye have always obeyed not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not only are you being exhorted by the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to work out your own salvation as someone who has been obedient to the gospel of Christ and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved. You are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not with a fear of men, but you are to have a healthy fear of God. There's no doubt about it. With fear and trembling, you work out your own salvation. You need to understand that even though the world may curse God, he is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those who about him. Greatly feared if you are a Christian. You greatly fear God. Fear of the Lord is an easy one for me to bring to you. It comes up time and time again in the scriptures. All I had to do was copy and paste from an old sermon, a recent sermon, because this is something I've preached on many times. Fearing God. And I can do no better than to quote Spurgeon, what Spurgeon said about fearing God. Listen to this. There is an unholy fear which is cast out by perfect love, but there is a holy fear, a filial fear. A filial fear is the kind of fear that a child has for his or her father. A healthy, respectful fear where he's not flippant with his father or her father. He's respectful of his father, her father doesn't trifle with him and so on and it dwells most happily with faith that kind of fear so was it with Noah who by faith moved with fear prepared an ark to the saving of his house 
You see, faith and fear can live in the same heart and they can work together to build the same ark. Faith and fear are very sweet companions. When the fear is filial fear, a holy dread of disobeying God. When we are moved with that fear, our faith becomes practical. Can you see that the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is key to fearing God and living in obedience to him? All three things there, faith, fear, obedience. As Spurgeon said, Noah's faith produced his fear, his faith and his fear produced his obedience. Undoubtedly, the person who is working out his own salvation is someone who has been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, including the twin blessings of faith and fear, fear of God. Even with lowliness of mind and with a filial fear, sitting alongside a genuine faith, In your heart, imagine you've got all these things, dear Christian. You've got that faith, obviously that must be there. You you even have a filial fear of God. You don't treat God in some casual way. And you've got that lowliness of mind where you esteem others better than yourself. You've got all these things in place. Even then, working out your own salvation would still not only be difficult, it wouldn't happen. It still would not happen if it were not for verse 13. Let's have a look at verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You can't read verse 12 without reading verse 13. Verse 12 will not happen without verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God was working in the Philippians and he works in all born-again Christians, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. With the Holy Spirit at work in Christians, they undergo a change whereby they are being transformed by the renewing of their minds. You read that in Romans chapter 12, the renewing of your mind, no less. You think differently to those who are not obedient to the gospel of Christ. Your desires ought to be different. Your ambitions, your priorities ought to be different to when you were not a Christian. Day by day, God ought to be, well, God is at work in you, sanctifying you, making you more holy, more like Jesus, who is meek and lowly in heart. With the Holy Spirit working in you, increasingly, you desire to shun evil and to do that which is pleasing to God. You desire to do that. I'm not saying you do. The Apostle Paul couldn't manage it. He said, the things I I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Wretched man that I am. But you just from reading the Apostle Paul, you can tell that he had that earnest desire, a God-given desire to do the will of God. And that's how it ought to be with you and with me. 
and living out your faith in accordance with the word of God that teaches that the church, not just our little church here, but the church as a whole, the church is one body and Jesus is the head of that church. With the enabling of the indwelling spirit, instead of trying to build names for yourselves or uh, compete with others or devalue others, Christians really ought to increasingly esteem others better than themselves. Is that really you? Is that me? Genuinely esteeming others better than yourselves. And not just caring for your own things, but caring for the things of others. Because these are the marks of a Christian. They ought to be in place to some degree. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're just resting on a conversion testimony or a sinner's prayer that you said when you became a Christian. And that's it. This is what the word of God says about the church. But now indeed there are many members, yet one body, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. We can't say that to each other, I have no need of you, if we're all in that one body. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think think to be less honourable, on these we bestow great honour. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honour to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. That's, That's from the word of God. Finally, it goes without saying that the exhortation to work out your own salvation because it is God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure is not directed at anyone other than Christians. That is not an exhortation to you if you are not trusting in Jesus. Work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. God is not working in you if you are disobedient to the gospel of Christ. Only Christians have God working in them. I say that also that it's not for you. Verse verse 12 there, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling if you're not trusting in Jesus yet. Because people have, who have no interest in the Saviour and in his finished work of redemption have no salvation to work out. What salvation are you going to work out if you don't belong to Jesus? Instead, you will occupy your time working out something else, the depravity of your own wicked heart. And you will do that for your own selfish ends. You're hardly likely to esteem others better than yourself. You're hardly likely to um, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, if you reject Jesus. But you, dear Christian, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, 
May it be your prayer and your earnest desire that with the enabling of the Holy Spirit who indwells each one of you and with whom you are sealed, you are, you are indwelt and sealed with the Holy Spirit, consider others better than yourselves. Don't just look out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Do all things without complaining, without moaning, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen.